Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good evening, church. Tonight's reading will be from Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. It's a privilege to have the chance to, once again, to preach the Word of God. And I hope that you brought your Bibles or your Bible apps or whatever it is you intend to use and your good listening ears and thinking caps because uh, we are going to hit the ground running this evening with the truly last uh, lesson in this series uh, which is not one of the seven ones. I'm having trouble with the clicker tonight, y'all. So, uh-huh. there we go. All right. So, uh, we, have, we have looked at the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and talked about the seven ones of true religion. We looked at the last in the list, one God and Father who is over you all, through all, and above all. And tonight, uh, flowing from that series, a lesson about the restoration plea and about the great and important mission of Christian unity, which we, every single one and every congregation of, of God's people, ought to be 100% all about. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I say with kindness but with boldness, any individual that claims to be a follower of Christ but who does not hold to the seven ones of true religion is not a Christian who is sound in the faith, if a Christian at all. And any church that does not uphold and teach the seven ones of true religion, again, is a church that deeply needs correction at best, if it is worthy of being called a church of Christ at all. But tonight I want to draw our attention back to the first three verses, which form the beginning of the context that we've been talking about as we've looked at verses 4 through 6 uh, over the course of this past month. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, I want you to notice that word, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the implication of this opening section of Ephesians chapter 4 is that the unity that we experience as Christians is something that the Holy Spirit has created. When you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized at that point into unity, into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of God, into a state of unity with the church of Christ, universally speaking, visible and invisible, everywhere in this world, and it then becomes your obligation not to break that unity, not to cause a division. But brothers and sisters, we have not lived up to that 
uh, to that teaching very well. We have not lived up to that calling very well. And what I mean, first of all, when I say that, is the whole history of Christendom. And when I use the word Christendom, I use that as in the broadest sense, the proclamation of Jesus and the general belief in the Bible all over the world. That's what I mean when I say Christendom. I'm including churches that I believe are sound in the faith and churches that I don't believe are sound in the faith. Individuals that I believe are Bible-believing Christians, true Christians, and those who are Christians in name only. We're talking about Christendom universally. And so when we talk about the history of Christendom. Some call it church history. For the past 2,000 years, to a large degree, it is a story of all of the divisions that have taken place within the body of Christ. That's a rotten shame, but it is the absolute truth. If you study church history, about half the time you'll spend talking about positive stuff that's happened over 2,000 years. But I guarantee you, if you take a class on the subject, you read a book on the subject, half of the book is going to be about how Christians over the past two millennia have had a very hard time getting along with each other and maintaining their fellowship in congregations that are all on the same page. And brothers and sisters, our fellowship in Churches of Christ have done no better than church history over the past 2,000 years. In fact, what began as, for the most part, a unity movement, which the American Restoration Movement I'll talk about in a little bit uh, more detail as we go on tonight, which is our roots in the Churches of Christ today, historically speaking, began as a unity movement, and our fellowship has divided itself against itself as many times or more in the past 200 years than any other Christian fellowship that has existed in the past two millennia. Now, it doesn't do any of us any good to pretend like that, is, that isn't true. It doesn't do us any justice to act like that that's not uh, the reality of our past. Because if we're going to be the kind of unity uh, preservers, the kind of peacemakers, the kind of brothers and sisters in Christ that continue to do the things that enable us to stay together on the same page in one body, in one fellowship, that fellowship of the Spirit, then we need to be in reality, not in fantasy land about the track record that we and our ancestors have in our past. We need to fix that. And there are some things that have def definitely got to change in some Christians' hearts if they're going to be able to obey Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You see, it's very easy to teach Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. It's really easy to stand up and say, let me tell you what the, the fundamental doctrines of the faith are. Let me show you where the boundaries are. Don't step outside of those boundaries. These are the boundaries. That's really easy to do. But to get back on what comes first, what that boundary passage flows from, and talk about just how important it is to God that we be one body in Christ, full in unity, every single person that names the name of Jesus Christ from pole to pole ought to be a part of one single universal church. One single universal church and ought to be speaking the same thing, practicing the same thing, sharing the same message with a lost and dying world. That is what ought to be the case. And the Bible by no means makes that a back burner issue. And so we've got to think about this realistically. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 6, 16, a very important passage. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Brother Alexander Campbell, one of the early Restoration preachers, said something in a, uh, a lecture that I have read. Of course, I wasn't around to hear it. This is young men, you know, 
leading worship tonight. So, you know, I wasn't around to hear him say it, but I've read, you know, the lecture as it's been printed. And one of the things he said is a statement that you ought to take consideration of. That which is most ancient is most true. Now, in our world today, in 2022, that is just as far from the worldview as most of our young people are being raised up in, in the United States, the media is sharing all those sorts of things. Uh, they generally are being taught that that which is old is outdated and, and ought to be looked at with some kind of scorn and rejected because what's happening now in this secular progressive culture is that the wisest people that have ever lived are charting a way forward that is better than any of our forefathers have ever done. And I want to tell you that that is absolutely a lie. It is not true. Now, I've already said at the beginning of this sermon that in the church we do not have a good track record of unity. We do not. And so I'm not making any pretense about some glory days in the past. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about how well humans have done in the past because humans in past generations have done just about as well as we're doing now because humanity, our nature doesn't change. Our nature doesn't change. That doesn't mean you as an individual can't change. It doesn't mean that individuals can't decide to be better than our raising, to do better than folks have done before us. And we ought to do that. But humanity as a whole continues to do the same things they've been doing every generation ever since the beginning of time. Right? So I'm not making any statement about some glory days in the past. We're not talking about what humans have accomplished. We're talking about what happens to be true. We're talking about reality. That which is most ancient is most true. What is the most ancient thing possibly imaginable? God himself, who cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2. When we're talking about the Christian faith, what is true? What is true is what was established by Jesus and preached by the apostles to the ancient world. That is the truth of the Christian faith, and it doesn't change. And so if you find a doctrine that didn't exist, wasn't being preached and taught by the apostles and their associates, it is not true true. That's the point that we're talking about here. And this is the, the meaning of the passage in Jeremiah 6, 16. The ancient paths, the old paths, seek the old ways. If you want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and the apostles, if you want to be the kind of Christian that they made through preaching the gospel in the first century, which is the only kind that there is, then you don't need to look to modern teaching and modern philosophies and ideas that are being shared in pop culture today. You need to turn back the pages of time, look for the old paths, and walk in them. And the prophet tells us that that is the good way, and that is where you will find rest of your soul. And so we're thinking about being the church today. We want to try to bring the, church, the, the pathway that we're looking for to try to increase the visible unity of the church in our world today is not one that is going to be uh, paved by compromise. Can't compromise the seven ones of true religion we've talked about in this series. It's not one that's going to, well, hey, let's all come down to the table. Let's forget our differences and let's just kind of create some union that's kind of like pouring oil and water into the same bucket and saying, well, at least they're in the same bucket. That doesn't work either because that involves compromising God's will. And there are many things that we cannot compromise. And we're not going to compromise. But, but seeking to unify believers everywhere is absolutely going to require that we look back to the standard in Scripture and we do our best to follow it and to teach other people to follow it too. Now that means doctrine, but it does not mean only doctrine. And this is where our brotherhood has sometimes failed to fulfill this mission. 
The solution to the, vision, to the division in the church and in Christendom as a whole starts with us being a certain kind of church. All right? It starts with us being a certain kind of church. And that is a church that is rooted. That is rooted. Now, one of the characteristics of postmodern society, of society around us, is that uh, so many of the people that we interact with have no concept whatsoever of their roots. They don't know what their parents believed or what their parents did. They don't know what their grandparents believed or grandparents did. They don't have uh, a foundation beneath their feet uh, that would help them to, to know who it is that they're called to be or where they're coming from or where they're going. We have lost connection with our past because of the malignity of our culture against age and of its predilection to praise the qualities of youth. Now, let me say this. I, of course, love young people. I love middle-aged people, too, and old people, too. You know, wherever that line is that we decide who's no longer young and who's middle-aged and who's no longer middle-aged and who, who's all old, you know, look, we, we love everybody of every age. And there is a vitality that young Christians bring to the church. Read 1 John, the whole thing. You'll find John talking about this. All right? There's a vitality, an energy, a, a fresh uh, view of life that young people bring into the church. But I will tell you what young people do not bring into the church consistently, and that is wisdom. And I'm not being mean, young people. I'm not telling you you're incapable of wisdom. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes out of the mouth of the young may come the wisest thing in a whole conversation. That sometimes happens, and that's good. But that's the exception. It's not the rule. And I will say for my part, one of the things that was a product of my raising and my experience is that when I was a young man in my 20s, I did not think that I was wiser than my seniors, my elders who were in their 50s and 60s and 70s and on. I didn't make that mistake. And that doesn't make me better than anyone else. We've all got our areas of weakness, our blind spots, our temptations and that sort of thing. But I'm saying this to you who are young. Please do not think something that is false about yourself. There are just some lessons in life, guys. I've learned this the hard way as most of us have. There are just some lessons in life that it takes decades to learn. Is that not true, older folks? Is it true? It's true. There are some things that it just takes decades to learn. And so it's not a statement about what, who's incapable of what or who's better than what or more important than anybody else. That's not what I'm talking about. We're just talking about what's practical. So please understand, please understand who you are, where you are in relationship to the other people that God has put in your life. There is a lot of wisdom in this room. There's a lot. Some of it is in the minds of some of you young people. And I love you for it, and I appreciate your faith and your loyalty to Jesus. I think our young people of this congregation are doing at least as well as the young people of any congregation in the world that I'm aware of. And I mean that. I mean it. I am proud of y'all. The young people growing up here right now are doing a lot better job of being Christians than I did when I was your age. All right? And I'll just be transparent about that. I didn't do a great job until God finally through life slapped me around enough times to where I just had to go ahead and face reality. All right, I'm proud of you. I really am. But the majority of that wisdom I'm talking about here tonight resides in bald or gray heads. And don't think the ladies aren't wise. It's color, okay? It's, it's color. 
all right? <laughs> That's not their real hair color. I just want you to know. All right, let's look at the book of Ephesians chapter 3. All right, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For he himself is our peace, that's Christ, who has made both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile to them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And Paul continues in verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the basis of the unity that we've got. This is the doctrine that is being communicated in the first half of this letter of Ephesians that Paul is applying in Ephesians 4 verse 1 and forward. I want to look also to Ephesians' sister epistle, the book of Colossians. Listen to what the Apostle Paul then has to say here in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, verses 6 and 7. Listen to the Bible. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted. There is the word. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Verse 8 goes on to talk about being aware, uh, be, being aware of those who might lead you away from the foundation. Listen, brothers and sisters, as you grow in Christ over the years, you are going to change. Your mind is going to change as you continue to grow in your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Your, your words are going to follow suit with a change of heart. You're going to find you speak in a different way than you did before. You know, because your thought process has been changed by the Spirit of God through Jesus. You're going to find that your actions have changed. That there are sins that at one time were besetting sins to you. That you just could not figure out how you would ever learn to resist them. And the day is going to come when the Spirit of God is going to give you deliverance for those things through your growth. To where you're not going to be tempted with those things anymore. There will be other things you're struggling with in your life. The point I'm saying is you're going to change. And if you don't change... As you continue to follow Jesus Christ, you're not really following Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. When it comes to the truths, are you listening? When it comes to the doctrines, the truths that are the foundation of your relationship with Jesus, what you understand to be true after you've been taught and obeyed the gospel, you change your mind about those things extremely slowly and hesitantly extremely slowly and hesitantly. It's possible that you've been taught something that's foundational wrongly, but you ought not to be convinced of that easily. Are you hearing me? You ought not to be convinced of that easily. You need to think. You need to pray. You need to study. You need to seek counsel. You need to discuss with the church, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, I'm wondering about this thing that I've been taught. I've been challenged on this over here. What do you brothers think? What do you sisters think? Give me some input. Give me some feedback. You need to be praying, God, please protect me from being led astray by false teachers. Always, Lord, defeat me in my missteps. Keep me in your truth, regardless of the cost. You need to be praying those things, brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be a church and a member of a church that is rooted, that is built upon a foundation, the unchangeable foundation of the Word of God. And that's the kind of church 
brothers and sisters, that we've got to be if we're going to exist within the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and be able to be the ambassadors for Christ, to reach out with an open hand to those that love Jesus or would love Jesus in the world who have been mistaught or deceived with regard to His will. I want to read to you a quote about the Christian churches and churches of Christ, about churches that had their roots in the Restoration Movement. I'll talk just for a second about the Restoration Ideal. I'm already way more out of time than I wish I was. So, again, buckle your seatbelts, man, because I ain't slowing down. All right? Christian churches and churches of Christ trace our modern origins to the early 19th century, century American frontier, a period of militancy among denominations. America's pioneers brought their deeply rooted religious convictions to the new land and perpetuated their old animosities. Presbyterian squared off against Anglican, who defended himself against Baptist, who had no tolerance for Lutheran. A reaction to this mutual animosity was inevitable. When it came, the reaction was spontaneous. A group of New England Christians broke out of denominationalism, announcing their intention to follow the Bible only. Another group in Kentucky and still another in Pennsylvania, each independent of the other, felt the spirit of unity moving them to stand with, not against, fellow Christians. Under the leadership of Minister Barton W. Stone, some Presbyterian leaders in Kentucky published the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery, putting to death their denominational connections. They said, quote, we will that this body die, be dissolved, and to sink into union with the body of Christ at large. For there is but one body and one spirit. And on that quote proceeds, end quote. The early leaders of what came to be called the Restoration Movement believed unity in Christ was and is possible. To achieve it required letting go of human traditions and loyalties to dynamic personalities. Christ alone could be exalted. The ideal of the church that emerges from the pages of the New Testament must be the standard for today's congregations. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what I believe the Bible teaches to be true. I am a restorationist. At least that's what some people would label me. And there are folks in Christendom that don't like the idea of someone being a restorationist. But let me tell you what it means to be a restorationist. It means simply this, that if I as a Christian or the church that I'm a part of has drifted away from some biblical teaching, then a restorationist says, huh, we ought to restore our loyalty and obedience to that thing we've drifted from. That's what it means to be a restorationist. How could a Bible-believing person not agree with that? Now, I know there's some that don't because of their traditions. But if you find yourself walking with the Lord and you're reading the Bible or you're in a church environment and you realize that something we're thinking, saying, or doing is not in accord with what the Bible teaches, what should you do? Fix it. Restore it. Seek the old paths. Go back to the ancient way. That's the good way. That's where you will find rest to your souls. And so that leads us to talk about being idealistic. Now again, idealists are sometimes criticized by pragmatists in our culture. Oh, you're just an idealist. Well, things are never going to be the way that you wish that they were. And I will tell you this, that idealists are people that experience a lot of pain and disappointment in life because you expect the best out of your fellow man. You expect the best out of yourself. You, if you're an idealist, you expect the best out of the church that you're a part of. And you know what that means? It means that there are going to be countless times in your life where you're going to disappoint yourself, not living up to your expectations, where your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to disappoint you because they're not going to live up to your expectations upon them. The church as a whole is going to disappoint you because it's not going to live up to your expectations. Brothers and sisters, that's life. But do not quit thinking the best 
of your brothers and sisters in Christ and do not quit expecting the best from the church that you're a part of, no matter how much it hurts. I think if you go back and read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you will find that Solomon says, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. So do you want to be a fool? Do you? Or do you want the pain? I'll take the pain and be wise if I have my choice. Because I'd rather know the right path, even if it's hard to follow, and to be on it. And know that I'm going to reach the destination at its end, which is the desired restoration, the desired destination, than to be blissfully ignorant of the fact that I'm on the wrong path altogether. Wouldn't you? What's the point of having an easy way to go in life if it doesn't end at rest? What's the point of having an easy way to go in life if it ends in a condemnation from the Lord and being cast away from his presence eternally? That doesn't make much sense. So let's be an idealistic church. Continuing the quote, while gratefully acknowledging their debt to great reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and others, these Christians only believed their reforms remained unfinished. The only way to determine what the church should be and how Christians should behave is to study New Testament documents in which the churches of Christ are presented in splendor and in their shortcomings. While there is no single church that we should imitate, the ideal of the church as the body of Christ, the household of faith, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the people of God is clearly pictured. In a unity effort initially separated from the Stone Movement, another Presbyterian minister, Thomas Campbell, published his now famous declaration and address in 1809. He had earlier immigrated to Pennsylvania from his home in Ireland. While still there, he had grown restless with the strictures of his denomination. And listen, this was the denomination he was a part of. It was the old light, anti-burger, seceder Presbyterian church. Now imagine if you were responsible for getting all that on the sign out in front of the building. But that's just demonstrative of the kind of division that had found its way into the Reformation movement. Folks couldn't stay to get anything they disagreed with about even minor things would split and form another denomination over. And this was what was wearing people out. And brothers and sisters, it ought to wear everyone who loved Jesus out. When he found the division caused by local grievances in Scotland separating Presbyterians in America, he rebelled. He would not exclude non-members of his denomination from communion in his church. He was expelled from the presbytery. It was really a question of who fired whom, for by this time Campbell could not carry out the policies he deplored, which were those divisive policies that came from outside of the Word of God. In this declaration, here are some points that I just want to share. I've discussed the declaration and address before. I think every Christian should read Thomas Campbell's declaration and address of 1809. You can look it up and read it for free online, and you should. It is a masterpiece, and you should read it. And you should be proud that you are part of the churches of Christ that flow from that mindset, which is absolutely, I believe, you will find biblical in every way. The church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one, consisting of all those in every place that profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him in all things according to the Scriptures. Now, Risking running out of time altogether, let me tell you what we mean when we say this is Laverne Church of Christ and we are members of the Church of Christ and we're not talking about the denomination, the Church of Christ. We're talking about the Church of Christ. We're talking about the one and only church that Jesus built 
and that he, he bought with his own blood, that he paid the price for, that he sent his apostles out of the ancient world to establish the preaching of the gospel. The only church that Jesus and the apostles established, the church that belongs to Christ, the undenominational, the anti-denominational church of Christ. That's what we're talking about when we say we are members of the church of Christ. And that's what we mean when we say we're members of the Lord's church. And anything else we say, that's what we mean. And if that's new to you, I would love to sit down and study with you in your home or mine or in the church library here and show you exactly what the Bible says about the church of our Lord. Because you can be a member today in the 21st century of the very same church that was established in the first. And that's all we're asking people to do. There ought to be no schisms, no uncharitable divisions between or within local congregations. Nothing ought to be bound upon Christians as articles of faith, nor required of them as terms of communion, but what is expressly taught and enjoined upon them in the Word of God. And this is one of the areas where we in the churches of Christ have failed. This is one of the ways that we failed, brothers and sisters. There are folks among us for long periods of time that have bound traditional teachings that do not find their roots in the Word of God and made them conditions of fellowship. And that divides brethren from brethren. And it cannot be allowed. And it cannot be seen as okay. Continuing that the New Testament is as perfect a constitution for the worship, discipline, and government of the New Testament church, and as perfect a rule of the duties of its members as the Old Testament was for the worship, discipline, and government of the Old Testament church. In other words, do you need to write a handbook for how to worship God or a handbook for how to organize the church. You need a, a doctrinal creed book in order to, to tell us, you know, concisely what it is that we believe. What can man do outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is going to create a document that is a, a better guide for the church than the one that the Holy Spirit himself has given us? What do we need beyond the 27 books of the New Testament to tell us how to be Christians and how to be a Christian church? Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with reading books that men have written. That's fine. But you don't understand what they are. They're the uninspired writings and thoughts of fallible men and women. But the New Testament is the inspired Word of God. It is inerrant. There are no mistakes in it. It is our all-sufficient guide as to how to be the people of God. And no human authority has power to impose new commands ordinances upon the church which our Lord Jesus has not enjoined. Let us be extremely careful not to bind where God has not bound. Brothers, it has not been our primary sin in churches of Christ to loose where God is not loosed, although that has happened. It has been our primary sin to bind where God has not bound. And we need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to do that. It is just as much a sin to cross the boundaries on the right as it is a sin to cross the boundaries on the left. And so we must be balanced people who follow the word of God with a clean conscience. The New Testament presents the ideal for the church of Christ. The church in heaven and as heaven has ordained it is perfect. The church on earth is not, nor will it be this side of eternity. This ought to humble us. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says that we ought to cultivate a mindset of humility among us all because God is opposed to the proud. And, in, and to inspire us to be very patient and forbearing with each other, forbearing with one another, forgiving each other love. 1 Thessalonians 5 14. However, the standard set in Scripture must remain the standard without compromise and we must always strive to live up to it. Finally, we must be honest and determined. Honest 
and determined. First of all, we've got to be honest about who we are. I'm sorry I don't have time to go through all of these passages tonight with you. We're, we're out of time, man. But I put those on the screen. I would love it if you've got a phone to take picture of that list of scriptures there and make that a part of your devotional this week to study those passages of scripture. But let me tell you the gist of what they say. The gist of these passages tell us this, that God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, who are God's people, ought to be just as unified as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. We are to speak the same thing, 1 Corinthians 1.10, which includes even being as much as is possible of the same opinion, the same mind, and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says. Now, we'll never do a perfect job of that this side of eternity. But we need, again, to embrace humility and strive to do our best. We need to also remember that just because we're convicted about something, if it is not something that the Bible explicitly enjoins upon us, your pet doctrine that might be your favorite practice or your conviction about how things should be done doesn't have to be mine. And mine does not have to be yours. And there can be a great deal of variety in the ways that we go through the process of being and doing the things that the Bible commands us to be and to do. Romans 14, you need to be just as familiar with as you possibly can be. Let me summarize it in this way. If the Bible says thou shalt, thou shalt. If the Bible says thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Whatever is in between is a Romans 14 issue, and you need to read that passage and understand it and determine to live by it. People that understand Romans 14 and live it do not split churches. People that understand Romans 14 and live it do not split churches. There are people that understand what is required and what is not and are able to put their pet desires to the side in order to allow the Spirit to have His way and let the body be what God would have it to be. And so, brothers and sisters, let's seek the ancient paths. Let's be honest about our successes and failures. And let's be determined to continue to grow in our ability to keep the Lord's will perfectly. Listen to that. We're not keeping His will perfectly. At Laverne Church of Christ, we are not keeping the Lord's will perfectly. Can you hear that? We've still got growing to do. But we ought to continue to determine to move in the direction that the Spirit of God through the Word leads us. And be honest, when the Word of God holds up the mirror and says, this is you, we need to be willing to change until we are perfect. Amen? Perfection, Jesus' perfection is our aim, and nothing less will do. We need to be firm about clear commandments and be very gracious regarding everything else. Beloved brethren, I love you so much, and I love this church so much. This is the great church in so many ways, and I'm telling you, God has been doing a great work here, and I pray and trust He'll continue to do so. When I say that we're not doing things perfectly here, we're just being honest about the fact that we need to continue to study the Word of God and strive to, to be more perfectly conformed to His will. It's not an insult. It's actually a compliment that I'm able to preach to a congregation full of people that can hear that. They can hear it humbly and not get up in arms about it, but recognize that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. James tells us we all stumble in many ways, and these are truths about us all. We're bound together in a fellowship by what Jesus has done, not because of what I have done or what you have done, 
That's the basis of our fellowship. And so we've got to be the kind of church, if we're going to keep being the great church, and if through the power of God we're going to get greater, we've got to continue to be this kind of church that humbly looks to the Word of God without pet doctrine, without grinding stump. Looks at our fellow church members and our fellow man and says what God said to old sinful Israel. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be as wool. Though your sins are as crimson, they'll be white as snow. But to be that certain kind of church, we've individually got to determine to be that certain kind of Christian. Because it's that certain kind of Christian, the real kind, the Apostle Paul kind, the Jesus kind, the Spirit-led kind that builds up churches that are that kind. Brothers and sisters, we've got to remember that the biblical kind, the Christ-like kind, never willingly compromises doctrine, but realizes also that learning doctrine is a process. We are all in different places, and we must, as Jesus is patient with us all, be patient with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's all the time I've got this evening, but I want to let you know that if you are accountable for your actions, you know right from wrong, and you know you've sinned against the Lord, you need a Savior, Jesus is the only one you're going to find. Confess your belief in him. Make the decision to turn from sinful living. Tonight, obey the command to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. They will be washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. You'll be added to the church, Acts 2, 47. The one and only church that there ever has been or ever will be. You can't be baptized into any other church than the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you haven't been baptized in it and you understand what I'm saying tonight, you need to do it. This evening, if you are a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, come while we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.